Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast, where we explore the exciting science behind heart rate variability. The material discussed in this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Please check with your medical provider to make sure any suggestions or strategies are right for you. Visit us at the OptimalHRV.com website to learn more about the Optimal HRV app, download a free copy of Matt's book, Heart Rate Variability, and also get show notes and additional resources around heart rate variability and its applications. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. We've got Matt here, and we've also got our guest who returned, Dr. Richard Gewertz. Thanks for being back. All right, so we brought him in because we are very interested in learning more about gut-brain health and also how um, biofeedback plays a role, how HRV plays a role. So I've got a list of questions for you, but at any point, if you kind of want to elaborate or kind of give us some stories of your experience of what got you interested, um, maybe we could even start with that. So what got you interested in... um, IBS, or let's call it, you said disorders of gut and brain interaction. Mm-hmm. What so got you interested? Now they're called, yeah, that's it called, that's a good description, DG, DGBIs. The new, that's the new one, the Rome, the Rome people. Um, well, let's see. Um, how did I get interested? I guess because um, I'm good friends with a guest, pediatric gastroenterologist. And we knew that the gut was heavily influenced by the autonomic nervous system, especially the vagus. And uh, we, uh, so we said a logical, since we were working on disorders of uh, autonomic dysfunction, we thought a logical one might be this one. Um, and the first kid he sent me, we got better in about three weeks completely. Wow. <laughs> that was just lucky. <laughs> but. Uh, so then I thought, why? This is cool. Uh, so then we started uh, cultivating. Uh, he, uh, my friend Warren, uh, got me introduced at our children's hospital, Radies Children's Hospital here, to do some in services for the gastro- pediatric gastroenterologist. Uh, and the reinforcing part of this is that gastroenterologists totally get the uh, brain gut interaction. This is a very big part of their training. So you're, it's it's a very receptive audience. You don't you do not have to convince them. And about forty percent of the kids that they see have these functional disorders, and they they have no treatment for it. Hmm. These are you know, probably about seventy percent female, lovely physicians. They love kids. They're just lovely people, and uh, they're not full of themselves like surgeons are. <laughs> And so they uh, they feel terrible when the kid they couldn't help the kid right so and these are tend to be internalizing kids kids that are kind of internalizing emotions and so they're adorable kids uh, and I love kids I've always loved kids I was a camp counselor when I was a teenager for all my years and um, I've always been a kid person so it was just sort of naturally we got into it awesome awesome cool. Um... So what would you say in terms of the role of HRV? What can we kind of expect to see for um, baseline HRV for individuals with these types of conditions? 
Yeah, so we do a five minute resting baseline with you know, breathing normally. Um, and there's lots of studies showing that they have poor vagal tone, um, poor variability in general, especially vagal tone, RMSSD and LNHF. Um, but it does vary a lot. So in, in the clinic, we always take the baseline first. Um, we're kind of hoping that we're gonna see some low numbers because that sort of justifies what we're doing and makes a real easy explanation. Mm -hmm. We don't always see that. Sometimes the kids look pretty normal to start with. So I, I run a clinic, I have two interns. We see about uh, 14, 15 sessions a week, 20 sessions a week of, and probably 80% of those are kids or adolescents with these problems. So we get a lot of experience with it. And, and you know, we, we have to be open-minded. So some of them come in with nice looking HRV, but in general, you know, you're getting RMSSDs in the 30s and SDNNs in the 30s or 20s and uh, LNHF in mid fives. So. Um, that makes it real easy for the explanation because we can just go right into our psychoeducation explaining how dominant the vagus is in controlling the gut and that their vagal tone is not really doing what it's supposed to. And it gives us the opportunity to talk about the main model we have is vagal withdrawal being the main model. Unlike trauma, uh, this is a disorder that doesn't seem to be associated with uh, big sympathetic surges. Uh, with that kind of stress. In general, it's these are kids that are just kind of worriers, anxious, and they um, don't, so they're, they're sort of taking the break off too much. We actually have one study where we did that with an ambulatory device. We, we did put it on the kids for a day of school called the Life Shirt. Um, and uh, it's a cute little shirt for the kids. The kids like that they, they could open it up and be a Superman. Because uh, it's like a latex shirt. And then we got uh, basically every heartbeat and every breath for a day of school. And then uh, my poor grad students had to go through five minute by five minute by five minute of the day. This shirt also had an accelerometer. So we were looking for periods of time when they're sitting quietly, breathing normally. Um, and then we would take our numbers from that. And we ended up getting really good, reliable numbers before treatment and then after treatment. So then, and so the kids started off with lower vagal tone uh, and numbers to start with than, than the normal kids. And then they improved during the treatment, during biofeedback. And the big thing was, and this was a big finding, the, it was a really strong correlation between the gain in vagal tone and the, and the reduction of symptoms, <clears throat> like a 0. 0.68 or 0.65 correlation. So those kids that had the most improvement from the biofeedback also had the most improvement uh, in their symptoms. And they all they all were improved, but that was a, the and that study actually won a prize at American College of Gastroenterology because it's a mechanism study, right? Which they love. They don't yeah. really, they don't love studies they can't figure out. But this was giving them a mechanism they understood, so they they loved it. And, and we did publish that. It's Eric Souter's study. S-O-W-D-E-R. Very cool. I, I'd love to throw in a question here, Anna, if it's okay. Um, I, I, you you started me out like I, I consider myself uh, because of the connection between the gut and the brain. 
I'm fascinated with gut health. Um, you know, my, my work in trauma, and this may be like, you know, you, you mentioned that these, the, this, the, the, the patient population was, was probably not experiencing trauma, though we do see a lot of what, what I used to call ir irritable bowel syndrome, uh, before, uh, just, uh, you dropped that bomb on us here a little earlier with the new name. Well, they, still, we, call, they still call it irritable bowel syndrome. That's just part of the DGI, I, DGBIs, so. But, but I love okay. the fact we're bringing the brain in there, that 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 real connection piece. So, you know, are, are we thinking with, with that name change? I, I just wonder sort of as we, well, name tweak maybe. The better umbrella than, term. Uh, the, the umbrella term. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there, has there, have you seen a movement over the years towards that? I mean, there there's some fascinating science around gut health, mental health, uh, the connections, neurons, serotonin, et cetera. But, but I'd love to just maybe update for folks like me that didn't know that this has gone maybe more into the diagnostic level of labels, uh, sort of what, what's happened recently to, to make this connection uh, that powerful. Yeah, well, so the, the anatomy and physiology was, has been known for you know, yeah. centuries. Uh, but and the gastroenterologists sort of get it, but um, just the prevalence of these disorders, uh, both with—I mean, we don't see so many of the trauma ones. You might see them, but mm -hmm. it could also occur in those populations, of course. And, and so that part, I think, is pretty established science. Uh, I don't think you would find very many gastroenterologists that wouldn't kind of just acknowledge that uh, stress plays an important role in IBS. Mm -hmm. Not IBD, but IBS. Uh, the, the more the newer stuff is the the microbiome, uh, which is way more complicated and way more controversial. So the the original study that was really exciting found that if you in animals if you cut the vagal afferent in animals from the from the micro from the the, the from the biome to the brain that you lose the brain gut connection with the depression. Mm. So the thinking was that's where depression is coming from, from the vagal afferent. Uh, if the if the if there's like a bacterial overgrowth or a, a bad microbiome, but the trouble was it was lost in translation. It didn't seem to work in humans. Um, so we don't really know, and the microbiome is exquisitely complicated. The number of organisms in the gut, are, everybody's different, are in the millions, millions of different organisms. So you get people who get better with antibiotics and people who get worse with antibiotics. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, probiotics have been a bust. They don't really work very well, but for some people they do. And I think it's just a, a, a shot. You know, you take a shot with a probiotic, maybe you get it. Most times you don't. Most everybody I've known who's spent a lot of money in probiotics has got no effect from it at all. So that's the area that we will see some growth in. There's a lot of interest in that. You, you've heard about fecal uh, transplants for people with C. difficile. So there's one microbiome that we do know. We really know what that bacterial is. And it's horrible. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a, it can kill you. So there's, there's those kinds of things. But beyond that, we don't know too much more about that part of it. Uh, but from our point of view, from uh, we almost every kid, adolescent, adult we see 
has tried changing their diet, changing probiotics, going gluten-free, going dairy-free, going fructose-free, and we're seeing them because that didn't work. Mm. They're a little better when they went gluten-free, maybe 4% better. They're a little better when all of us have a little tougher time with gluten and dairy. If you don't have celiac, though, it's probably not a major factor. So we, we're, we're really, the, the kids we see are really thrilled to be able to go back and eat pizza again. So <laughs> yeah, I remember something from your class. You would talk about how these kids were not able to go to sleepovers. They couldn't go to camping events just because staying overnight somewhere was just their worst nightmare. If they don't know where the bathroom is or if they're worried about having an episode, and then that that anxiety itself perpetuated it, right? Right. Um, and I loved hearing in your class how these kids were just so excited because they got to go to a sleepover, right? right? Or they were able to go on that summer camping trip with their Boy Scout group or Girl Scout group. And yeah. um, I think that's really cool. Um, yeah. And they could eat pizza, Anna. Pizza. Like, can you imagine how much you would love your physician at this age, if you could eat pizza and then uh, you go for a treatment and you could eat pizza. I, I just had to throw that one in too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's tough on kids not to be able to eat pizza. Right? Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And so like what I was wondering is um, when you see a child and you see adults for um, DGBI related conditions too, right? Yeah, fewer, but yeah. Okay. Um, is part of your intake, do you assess for diet and like nutrition and okay. Yeah, we do, but they've, they've already been through this. They've already seen a dietitian when we see them. And oh, okay. Kind of discouraged already by that. So, you know, we assess for exercise, sleep, diet, all these lifestyle things. Uh, but they, it turns out, I mean, you know, they matter, but not, not that much. Mm-hmm. Lately, we have been getting a lot more referrals from adults. There's a clinic at UCSD that specializes in uh, reflux and GERD. Um, And so there's a real cool study out of England showing that uh, esophageal pain thresholds are totally related to vagal tone. So um, if you remember those studies, Anna, from the class, but so they... This is a this was an equated experience. I was doing a workshop in London, and these are all psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, you know, that come to these workshops, biofeedback people, and go around the room. And there's this one guy named is Claude Bota, and he says, "So yeah, I'm Claude Bota. I'm a postdoc at the Neurogastroenterological Institute of Bart University here in London." And I said, "What is neurogastroenterology?" And he said, "Well, we study mostly they study reflux." Uh, and they have these amazing studies, and he had, he had read my work, so that's why he came to the workshop, uh, where they put a nasal gastric tube down, uh, down, the, down into the esophagus, and they put some little electrodes on it that can warm up slowly, and you can then rate uh, the beginning, just the very beginnings of pain in the esophagus to get a, an esophageal pain threshold, which, because it's England, they spell it with an O. <laughs> so... It's OTS. <laughs> uh, and it turns out that most of us have very stable esophageal pain thresholds. The one thing that affects it is acid in the gut. So this tube, then they pour a bunch of acid in the gut and the pain thresholds go down 30%. Mm. 
So the same stimulus that was not even perceived before, when there's a bunch of acid in the gut, suddenly is super sensitive to pain. So I thought, well, well that's interesting in itself. And the relationship is related to vagal tone. So then they got the idea is let's teach people nature biofeedback and see what happens to this. Uh, I never knew about this until this workshop. And he said, yeah, so we did that. We taught him to breathe at about six per minute. And then we did this thing again and it completely overrode the acid lowering of the threshold. In other words, once they were breathing anywhere near six per minute, the threshold was unaffected by acid. So that tells you how powerful that, and, and they did it, and it correlated strongly with what they, they had a cool thing called the neuroscope, which is a, a fancy thing of bars that just translates vagal tone into a little bar graph. Mm. So you could see when the bar graph was up, they didn't feel the pain. When the bar graph was down, they did feel the pain. Wow. So yeah, it was just super cool. Like I, I learned so much in that workshop compared to what I taught, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> So, and I've kept up with that group. The, the head of the group is a guy named Aziz in East London. It so happens that their lab is like four blocks away from my nephew, where my nephew lives in Shoreditch in London. So, <laughs> but I, I never, I've never been able to get him to respond until I go visit him. Today. <laughs> let, let me, let me throw, if I could, a, a lay, a lay person's question in here, because I think, you know, both of you obviously carry a huge amount of expertise in this area, but I would imagine maybe a few of our listeners are like, okay, I probably know enough about heart rate variability, stress response, maybe a little bit about that, how that relates to gut health, but, but is really can breathing practice biofeedback that powerful? I, I mean, the, just the results you're getting. So, so the answer is obviously yes, but I wonder if you could maybe fill in the blanks for some of uh, our people like me who might not, don't claim the expertise you do is how is fairly simple breathing practices having these amazing clinical results yeah so the gut the gut is uh, has an internal control system the enteric nervous system which is like 10 to the ninth neurons it's the brain in itself but the external control is the vagus completely. There's a, the only role that the sympathetic has is to shut the gut down dramatically, right? So in the face of a, of a real threat, uh, sympathetic threat, then the, the gut, we don't need to be digesting our Big Macs if there's a saber-toothed tiger out there. So, mm -hmm. so it shuts the gut <laughs> down completely. But we don't, think, we don't think that that is a common occurrence in everyday life. So then it turns out if we kind of look at the data that uh, what you need to keep the gut healthy is a pretty steady stream of vagal breaking. Remember from the last one, that's when you breathe in, the break goes off, when the break goes on. And when, when there's enough intervening vagal breaking, it uh, actually supplies serotonin to the enteric nervous system. 95% of the body's serotonin is in the gut, only 5% of the brain. So it's keeping that healthy neurotransmitter in the enteric nervous system, which uh, doesn't make the, the system sensitive to stretch. So when you lose that, when you lose that regulation in the gut, the gut is only sensitive to stretch and to, uh, to burning. So if suddenly your thresholds are way down because just a little stretch makes it hurt, that could be where abdominal pain comes from. Hmm. 
And all it takes is a, enough vagal withdrawal to break off enough times of the day to make the gut much more sensitive to the pain. Uh, and so we know that uh, regular practice of uh, resonance frequency breathing improves, if people do practice 10, 10 minutes or more a day, that it improves vagal tone by about 25% over about five weeks. Uh, and that's pr pretty consistent finding in most studies we do. If you're improving that vagal tone, this is resting vagal tone, not just yeah. during breathing. This is when you're not breathing slowly. So we can we have we have two two three studies in our lab and other labs have got the same thing. Uh, so now what you're doing is kind of putting in that little missing element into the gut that keeps it regulated, and if it stays regulated for three, four, five weeks, and suddenly stretch becomes stretch, it doesn't become pain anymore. Things move through in the proper uh, sequence, so diarrhea becomes normalized, constipation becomes normalized, because part of that gut's role is to peristalsis is to need all of that the mm -hmm. contents, get rid of the get rid of the fluids, take the nutrients out. Goes through too fast, it's diarrhea. Goes through too slow, it's constipation. And so the actually the cases that are the easiest to convince them is if they have constipation-related pain and then they have a bowel movement that feels better, it totally fits with a stretch model, right? Say, mm -hmm. well, evacuated the stretch in your in your gut and so that it doesn't hurt anymore. And they say, oh, no wonder, no wonder that feels better. Fortunately, that's not true for everybody, but when it is true, it's like, yes, we've got, we've got that explanation. <laughs> that's awesome. Andy, you got any more questions? Good. Yeah. So I was going to ask um, for someone who's listening to this and maybe they're exploring doing biofeedback or maybe they're interested in um, kind of even just providing psychoeducation to a patient, referring them to someone that does HRV biofeedback. Um, what would be something important maybe that they should know or uh, maybe rule out or just kind of some considerations if they're looking for some help, how they can get connected to someone who does this type of work. So I know for a lot of times you'll see HRV biofeedback therapists like really talk about anxiety a lot, but you don't see a lot of them talk about um, DGBI related conditions. Um, so I'm wondering if there's like a way to kind of connect that bridge or even just kind of some thoughts of hope no. to kind of provide for them. Yeah, for, for uh, children and adolescents, if you're in a metropolitan area, you need to see a university-based, uh, children's hospital-based gastroenterologist. Mm. And they, in most areas that we've, we've kind of corresponded with, Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, our Radies Hospital, um, Ock-Chock Children's Hospital of Orange County, LA Children's Hospital, um, Seattle, um, Chicago we trained a lot of people. So generally, Chicago, especially, there's a whole big like, there's a whole big psychological group that does nothing but they're, they're associated with North Shore Health in Chicago. Um, in fact, one of our former students, Alice Reynard, works in that particular unit. So she's a she's a uh, gastroenterological psychologist. So there cool. Are, there's are there are many of those. So. Um, so anyway, for those people, if, so I would say, you know, if you've got your local pediatrician, fine. They may not know about this, but if you get to a, a 
a teaching hospital somewhere with gastroenterologists, pediatric gastroenterologists, they will, they may, they may know somebody. The nationwide, uh, Rainbow, Cincinnati, those are all hospitals I know would do that. Mm. They have referral sources where they'll send out somebody for HIV about feedback. Um, so those are the ones. For adults, it's tougher. The, the adult gastroenterologists kind of get it, but they don't typically refer as much. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure what I would do with that, but just look up, go to BCIA website and see if you can find somebody who does HRB biofeedback. It should be helpful. Yeah. Awesome. And if they're looking, if they, their aim is kind of to help more with like anxiety, um, that will essentially give them the same benefits if they do a similar protocol. Yeah. 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 So the two, the two improve a lot. So the Beck, we, we give them the Beck anxiety inventories. They approve a lot of those. There's already a couple of meta-analyses on anxiety for HIV by feedback. So we have really pretty good evidence that it's, it produces a pretty, pretty good angiolytic responses in people. Um, awesome. But, you know, there are a lot of people with IBS that don't identify as anxiety patients. So That is so true. I was talking to a family member of mine who goes, so my doctor says I have um, irritable bowel syndrome. And I was like, oh, you must be like struggling with stress or something. And she goes, well, that must not be it then. <laughs> um, because I think sometimes when people hear it's something that's lifestyle induced or, mm. you know, psychophysiologically involved. It can be like, oh, well, I might have to like change some, you know, things I'm doing in my life. I might have to change how I, I mean, essentially breathing, right? Um, and uh, any words like of encouragement for someone? Because I know sometimes coming, going about feedback, hearing needed to do it for five weeks, you know, what kind of success stories have you seen or heard? Or that you've witnessed, you know? Yeah, well, we, we witness them every day, but we did, one of our students did, uh, a 28 consecutive case series study, which we published. So, and those are kids and adolescents. And they, they varied from IBS to other kinds of similar problems, some with abdominal pain, some with, some with constipation. So out of the 28, 28 were improved. 70% were symptom-free and 30% were greatly improved. Wow. Some good results. <laughs> Those are very good results. Now, lately, we've been getting sent much more problematic cases with all kinds of other diseases, too. And so we're not always as successful as that. But if it's a pretty straightforward, uh, the intern comes in and does the, the case history for me, and it's a kid that meets all the criteria. They don't have to be stressed necessarily, but they often are. Uh, but this is where that idea of vagal withdrawal is a powerful, for the therapist listening, it really is something you need to think about. Read, read Steve Porges' paper on vagal withdrawal. Mm -hmm. It changes the way you think about stress. Yeah. So instead of thinking about stress as accelerator, as a you know fight-flight response, you start seeing uh, your client, you're talking about, Anna would probably be able to identify periods of time that she had a lot of aggravation, or uh, just didn't feel good or something that could be enough time to take the break off the gut. Mm -hmm. And so we, we often know, we often don't get self-reported stress. We often do, but often we don't. So that, that idea of vagal withdrawal, it, to me, was one of the most powerful 
yeah. in my, my talk therapy, it was one of the most powerful ideas that I ever came across. Was I was trained with all about sympathetic, right? It was all sympathetic. Mm -hmm. In our early days of biofeedback, well, we had skin conductance and finger temperature and EMG. So we were just calming down sympathetic activity, which wasn't working that great. So as soon as I got this idea, it changed everything the way I thought. It also led me to ACT, too, because ACT is a perfect, acceptance and commitment therapy is a perfect fit for that fatal withdrawal idea. So... Would you be able to expand briefly on that, on what you mean by how it fits well? Uh, yeah, well, I'm. you guys ever talk about ACT on this podcast? Uh, not in detail. So you got to get Ina on here and give her, you know, get an hour on ACT from her. Um, so ACT is, a, is an alternative to CBT that uh, changes, the, changes the rule a little bit. Instead of changing and challenging dysfunctional cognitions, you learn acceptance, uh, strategies, and, and commitment, and uh, get away from experiential avoidance. So you're learning how to not struggle with your anxiety as opposed to try to challenge your anxiety. And that's just a perfect fit for that vagal withdrawal idea, right? Yeah. So if you're saying, you know, the, the problem for you is that you're in vagal withdrawal too many, too many hours a day. And how does that happen is because, you know, the finger, you give them all these finger, Chinese finger puzzles. So we say, the harder you pull, the tighter it gets, right? So if you're struggling with your anxiety three hours a day, you can bet your vagal break is off. Mm -hmm. And if your vagal break is off, you don't have to identify that as stress, but that's making your gut sick. So they, that usually works pretty well with people. They sort of get that. We're not accusing them of being neurotic or being, right. you know, air traffic controllers or cops or something that they think that's where stress is. This is like, you know, saber-toothed husbands, children, wives, traffic, co-workers. Those are the those are the vagal withdrawal folks. <laughs> yeah, and in the trauma world, ACT is very popular. Uh, seems like a really good fit for a, a lot of folks with that. I, I'd love to ask kind of a nerd question following up. When, when, when we talk about vagal withdrawal, I, I would love to, to connect, you know, we, we were sort of having a, a nerdy discussion about dorsal vagal activation before we uh, hit record here, but I'd like vagal withdrawal, I, I'd love to get a little specific here. So obviously sinus respiratory, respiratory sinus arrhythmia, sorry, it's a little late in the day. I'll get my words right here. The exhale, the, the break goes on, you know, inhale, break goes off. So when we talk about withdrawal, are we, are, are we maybe a little bit more specifically, help, help me understand, because I imagine it's still going on on the exhale, but not as much. Yeah, maybe not breaking at all. Okay, so... In the extreme, you get the break goes off completely. Yeah, that would be more, would that be more fight flight sort of energy? I, not necessarily, I, okay. Not necessarily. It's hard to separate the two when you get yeah. there. But the, those combinations, you'll, what you'll see is higher, flatter heart rate. Okay. And you, you, all of the rhythm and the heart rate's gone. That's all ventral vagal. There's nothing to do with the dorsum. Yeah. <clears throat> so basically, that breaking... That breaking with breath of the heart is uh, part of our healthy restorative response to the body in many ways, not, not just to the gut. Yeah. If it if it's if the break is turned off, 
uh, and there's a vulnerable organ system, be it anxiety, be the brain or the gut or muscles or whatever, you'll you'll see it show up there. Great, thank you. The way I kind of describe it to patients and correct me if I'm wrong here is I kind of tell them it's like having a, you know, if that break is never implemented or used or, or even just like kept in use to maintain it, it gets rusty. And the moment you need it, it can't, it doesn't work. Um, and so it's almost like it's to the point where you can't even press it down. And that can especially, both be for, especially if their baseline levels are consistent are, are uh, consistent with that, then you really got a good argument for them, right? So someone right. Comes in with a, a 15 SDNN and the, a 12 RMSSD, their brake is really rusted and not working. Yeah. So right. you say, you know, well, the good news is there, you've got a lot of things you can improve. The bad news is that your heart's almost a metronome and that's not good for you. So. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Yeah, I love Anna what you said because I'm a huge, especially with uh, children, uh, Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset and you know, it's another kind of muscle that we're, we're exercising, which uh, I know my wife has had a lot of success teaching neurobiology to, to first and second graders by, by using that, those, that sort of muscle analogy in there. And uh, to hear you doing it in your clinical work, it's like, oh, we could throw all Dweck's work in there uh, uh, too with that. Whenever you can put Dweck in, it's, uh, it's always a good day for me. Yeah, I think it's a good analogy, actually, to to like resistance training for a muscle, right? You, yeah. You want to get a muscle stronger, you almost damage the muscle, right? And then it heals better than it was. So in this case, we're making these big peaks and valleys of your heart rate, so really taking the barrel reflex to its limits. And why exactly that wires better, but it does. It's, so it's, the analogy is it's like exercise for your autonomic nervous system, which we, we use that a lot. Yeah. Definitely. Would you suggest kind of going back to um, these DGBI uh, conditions, do you find it's more helpful for people to do the breathing when they're having symptoms or not, or both? Both, yeah. So what we do is we first get them trained up. So they're doing really good, getting big, smooth peaks and valleys, a single low-frequency peak, as good as they can get it. And then we start instructing them to do this rescue breathing version of that. So in the session, what we do is we stress them and then say, okay, go. And they go back in their breathing and we count how many breaths it takes to get them back into that rhythm. And we say, okay, well, we know, oftentimes I look at the finger temperature, right? So I'm saying, it took you six breaths before your hand temperature start going back up again. So that's how, that's how long it takes you to kind of turn that ship. Mm you some people could be quicker some people may be longer uh, so then once they get that idea then they use it both ways they use it when they're when they're needed but they have to do they have to keep practicing daily um, right. but we did a follow-up kind of phone call follow-up with the kids in that Souter study and at first they said oh yes we practice every day and then we sort of asked the parents and they said no not really and then we said what really do you do it said well Whenever they need it, they practice again. <laughs> yeah, that's the hardest part is the adherence, right? And then, I'll, and then I, I've been told by 
supervisors too that you know we don't want them to only do it when they're stressed because then it becomes paired with stress and the idea is that it can be like brushing your teeth like it's part of like a daily routine like exercise you don't do it just because uh, your teeth are dirty you brush your teeth you do it every day because it's good for your teeth um but I think sometimes it's uh challenging for like the motivation part um yeah it's very challenging yeah we just you remember Jason Liu Anna. Mm -hmm. So Jason just finished the study, uh, which we're just sending a publication like tomorrow, I think, uh, in Taiwan, where he was treating traumatic brain injury with HIV about feedback. Awesome. A couple of unique things to it. One, he, he Jason is all over it, so he was talking to these people regularly. And number two, they're Taiwanese, so they do what they're told. <laughs> So these people really practiced, and we saw the most amazing results of the study. Every measure, every neuropsych measure, every psychological measure, HIV measure, we had a control group, a psychoeducational control group, uh, that didn't improve on anything. And this group had better, better uh, neuropsych memory functions, better, every neuropsych measure was greatly improved, almost all to normal. Uh, wow. So, and, but one of the things that we could really see in the HRV improvement was, I said, well, Jason, how did you get them to practice? He said, well, they knew they needed to practice. It's like a cultural thing, right? <laughs> and so he was sure that these people practiced every day. And we rarely see that in our culture, right? So this is like, oh God, so great we can get them to practice. So. You do have pizza as a motivator, though. If all else fails, you can you, you can maybe bring a pizza in and say, you know, we'll heat this back up for you if you practice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that study is going to be so helpful to show because I think a lot of patients go, oh, I'll just do it five minutes, like a couple of days a week. And then they think they're going to get the results. And but if there's like results that show, hey, when people actually did it like this, they got these outcomes. I had a patient today who even said, because I was telling him he was struggling with kind of like um, some like fatigue and like a little drowsiness. And I asked him to start doing some controlled breathing just to help improve attention and focus. And he said, yeah, I'm not going to just do some breath work for that, you know, <laughs> and that's an attest, attest to that, right? Like mm -hmm. it's... um. It kind of shows, I mean, it's going to increase blood flow to areas of the brain that are responsible for increasing attention and focus. Um, and we see that even just in mindfulness meditation too. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel validated as a therapist. And two, <laughs> um, I think that is something we want to try to talk about too, because not only is it going to help with his cognitive functioning, but it's also going to just in continue if he doesn't even have any, you know, gut health problems like we were talking about keeping that not a problem <laughs> so yeah. yeah yeah for sure well and i kind of um, mentioned carol's worker uh around growth mindset uh you know i think one of the 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 difficult things with adherence to like biofeedback i i i'm was preaching mindfulness but before by biofeedback now i'm obsessed with getting everybody on it but it's like it's like you talked about going to the gym you you might do a couple of sets of curls. You're not going to, your biceps aren't going to bulge out of your shirt right away. <laughs> so I think it's sometimes how we talk about it because with mindfulness, it's like this mystical thing and you will, you will levitate after two minutes of your first practice. And it's like, 
<laughs> no, I mean, it's been life changing for me, but I've been doing it now for 15 years. You don't need to do it for 15 years to get a lot of the benefits. But, but I, think, I think we're we're in such that immediate benefit kind of culture that it's like, you know, thinking about it as a muscle gives folks an analogy to say, okay, I know if I go to the gym every day or every other day, I will get bigger biceps, but not just from one, you know, quick workout. And, you know, so I, I've been working with folks, you know, this is where my motivational interview and cognitive behavioral background comes in is how do we, how do we really frame some of this really hard work that, you don't get so you're giving up something and you're not getting something immediately and that's the hardest thing to get people excited about is like okay i'm giving up 10 minutes of my day i'm not feeling better the day after i did it like yeah you got at least do it for a week but you know it's it's i think a challenge on us to how do we frame this in a way that picks up that adherence It's probably the major challenge facing our field. So whatever we can do. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. But we we're getting there. And I mean, I think what's cool with the technology aspect is we're having more ways to track and people can monitor on their phones. They can log when they practice or, you know, different programs where you can see if they're currently training. So that part's cool Mm -hmm. because I know, um, uh, the substance abuse one, I remember that one was tricky knowing if they were actually practicing, right? Because it's like they could say whatever they want to, right? And there's that wanting to please the PI or the therapist too. And so I usually tell patients, I'm like, look, um, I would rather you just be honest about how many you did because then I can kind of assess like what we need to do differently. If I don't know what's going on, I can't really help as accurately. Um, but I think a lot of it is just, you know, us modeling it too. I'm, I just told uh, Matt in our group that I'm going to start doing uh, HRV biofeedback with myself because I tanked in my HRV a couple weeks ago and it scared me. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we got to practice what we preach and understand where it is challenging to keep doing that. But um, those and are it's, all the It's kind of funny, just as a side note, is uh, one of the things that I thought was really important. Uh, And this goes back to when we were just tracking heart rate variability, doing three minute readings before we got uh, Ina's work into our app is something folks loved is that we have a provider dashboard so that they can actually see whether or not you really did practice. And that seems to just that idea that my practitioner is, is there, tracking me and I kind of can't come in and lie about it. Uh, you know, uh, we're getting a lot of feedback from practitioners that that's, uh, that's yeah. sort of been a game changer around adherence, which. Yeah. And that, it's been a while. It's been hard to convince the clinicians to do these baseline readings very often, but I, yeah. I you're absolutely right. I had somebody this morning who's got POTS and she has improved her uh, RMSST from 12 to 55. Wow. Oh, wow. Like 300% change. So, and her symptoms are better, but not completely gone. But that was very reinforcing for her to see those numbers. And I, I even did a, a recheck on it to see. So, I mean, I think that we, we try to use that as much as we can. And yeah. in fact, with the kids, if they're not improving, we, we usually are pretty sure they're not practicing. <laughs> then there's that 
Yeah. When you, when you got the data and the studies to to reach that conclusion, that's amazing. That's uh, yeah. Well, we, as Anna said, the technology is getting there. So now, uh, Mo, uh, one of our students is doing a study with an ambulatory follow up after mm -hmm. we see them in the clinic here. They're going to wear it for two weeks the leaf the leaf for two weeks, and we'll actually be able to see because it records everything. Yeah. We'll be able to see how much that practice relates to their changes in symptoms. So that will that'll be interesting. Right. Awesome. I look forward to what you'll find out. Um, that's all I have for questions. Matt, do you have any more for Dr. Gravine? You, you know, finally on one of my podcasts, the guests brought up fecal transplant and I didn't. <laughs> Um, so that this is great. <laughs> I think I brought it up like, uh, you know, in my podcast, I've done like 80 times because I'm, I, there's a 13 year old boy that lives inside of me. And I, I just find it <laughs> fascinating that taking other people's poop can make our gut health better. But, uh, so I, I just, I just appreciate you bringing it up because, uh, usually I'm the one that's bringing up fecal transplants in less scientifically appropriate ways, but, uh, appreciate it. And, just just appreciate you joining us again. Uh, you always have a home here on the Heart Rate Variability Podcast because uh, I, I just feel like I get a semester's worth of material in 60 minutes uh, from you, uh, whether I'm in your workshops at a conference or we're lucky enough to have you on the guest. So uh, we'll put some contact information again uh, in the show notes that you can find at OptimalHRV.com. Um, and I just want to thank our guests for joining us. Uh, and thank you to our guests. And uh, Anna, great job uh, hosting your first podcast. So hopefully uh, the first of many, you did a great job. Thanks everyone. Hope it, hope it wasn't too brutal. He's <laughs> <laughs> the Oprah of the future. I yes! love that, the Oprah That's of the That's a big future. compliment. <laughs> Holy moly, day made. <laughs> Take care everybody. <laughs>